A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This week, Mission Impossible Fallout asks, is there any stunt Tom Cruise won't do? What are you waiting for? I'm jumping out a window! Oh, sorry. Good luck. The Wife features Glenn Close as the overlooked half of a partnership. Don't walk away from me, Diamond! I can't do it anymore. I can't take it. I can't take the humiliation. And interlude in Prague is Mozart in love under another name. It's little doubt they are lovers. I can destroy him. But I cannot be seen as the architect of his downfall. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. Some wag once said that war was God's way of teaching Americans geography. But over the past few years, that role has been taken over by spy thrillers. Originally, it was mostly the British who sent their secret agents to all those overseas locations. It was a very lacklustre James Bond movie that didn't visit at least three continents and twice as many countries. Then the mantle was taken by Bond's American cousin, Jason Bourne, who pushed the travel agents even further in his films. There's a demonstration in front of the Greek Parliament building. I think she'll use it as cover. They tracked you. We gotta move. One of the staples of a Hollywood spy thriller is now the breakneck car chase through the narrow streets of some European capital. And there are none more breakneck than the Tom Cruise franchise Mission Impossible. Desperate times. Desperate measures. You have your seatbelt on? You asking me that now? Oh, hey, boys, what did I miss? The Mission Impossible series used to rely on over-elaborate plots and Ethan Hunt's rubber masks, the man with a thousand faces. Now the films are mainly made up of a series of jaw-dropping stunts by star Tom Cruise in exotic settings. Good job they usually come with maps to point out where Paris, Berlin, Belfast and Kashmir are exactly. You had a terrible choice to make in Berlin. One life over millions. And now the world is at risk. But Europe isn't just a glamorous backdrop for American movie star car chases. It comes with a certain cachet of class, particularly when royalty is involved. And one of the few royal honours that Americans can claim without marrying a prince is Sweden's Nobel Prize. Mrs. Kosselman. Yes, you should know that your husband will be fanning off the press today, so what I advise is that you monitor his calls as it does get quite exhausting. Yes, I'll take good care of him. 
There's something about a Nobel Prize that seems to rise above mere fashion, and not just because the King of Sweden bestows it. So it seems only right that a film about a Nobel Prize winner should also be favoured to reward America's own royalty. Without this woman, I am nothing. I'm going to tell you everything. The film is The Wife, and many people think this might be the one to break star Glenn Close's losing streak. Six nominations, no Oscars. Meanwhile, lest we forget, Europe has been the home of its own celebrities over the centuries. Mozart. 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 <laughs> How good is he? This Mozart. He's remarkable. He's an unprincipled, spoiled, conceited brat. I'm a vulgar man. But I assure you, my music is not. Clearly, the Welsh-Czech co-production Interlude in Prague aims to do for Mozart's opera Don Giovanni what Shakespeare in Love did for Romeo and Juliet, make up an attractive romantic story behind a classic. I hear you are writing a new opera here, Mozart. Don Giovanni is based on the story of Don Juan. Can I be of some help, perhaps? But first, Hollywood's ageless Energizer Bunny is back in Impossible Mission number six. It's Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible Fallout. Your mission. Should you choose to accept it? I wonder, did you ever choose not to? Tom Cruise may have been dismissed by the critics over the years, in part because his films are mostly about him, with his co-stars reduced to looking at him admiringly. But you can't deny Tom's staying power, and he seems to have outlasted the naysayers. Mission Impossible Fallout has been getting some good reviews for a change. The end you always feared is coming. And the blood will be on your hands. The fallout... Of all your good intentions. This episode is a bit of a franchise reunion with the return of writer-director Christopher McQuarrie, who piloted the last Mission Impossible. Also returning are episode 5's villain, the supremely creepy Sean Harris, and not one, but two Ethan Hunt girlfriends. You don't understand what you're involved in. You need to walk away. That's episode five's former MI6 agent Ilsa Faust, played by Rebecca Ferguson. And also on board is Ethan Hunt's long-forgotten wife from episode three, played by the wonderful Michelle Monaghan. So, how is he? Oh, you know, same old Ethan. But enough soap opera. Let's get this party started. There's a sinister criminal organisation loose, intent on blowing up world capitals and owing allegiance to rogue British agent Solomon Lane, currently in French custody. There cannot be peace without first a great suffering. The greater the suffering, the greater the peace. Solomon Lane. Mission Impossible was never great at naming its characters. Suffice to say that an early mission goes wrong in Berlin. That's Berlin, Germany. Here's a map. Because Ethan is too sentimental to sacrifice a team member to save the world. This is the CIA's mission. 
If he had held on to the plutonium, we wouldn't be having this conversation. This team would be dead. Yes, they would. That's the job. So the CIA steps in and offers its own mission to veteran actors Alec Baldwin as the team's boss and Angela Bassett in charge of the CIA. Can they keep a straight face during pages of exposition? Agent Walker, special activities. His reputation precedes. You use a scalpel. I prefer a hammer. My man goes where no one goes. Mission accomplished, and they assign a new member to the Impossible Missions team. Now, basically reduced to Tom Cruise, Simon Pegg as the technical advisor, and Ving Rames as the other technical advisor. The new man is one August Walker, played by former Superman Henry Cavill behind a big moustache. He's not just some observer. He's an assassin. You go rogue, he's been authorised to hunt you down and kill you. That's the job. The next step is, why not, Paris, France, or somewhere, no time for a map here, and a femme fatale called The White Widow, played in white by English actress Vanessa Kirby. You have something I want. Right now, that makes me the only person you can trust to get you out of here alive. I think I'd like to go home now. Vanessa's best known as Princess Margaret in the Crown TV series. She's by far the best thing in Fallout and makes you want to see a film called Princess Margaret Action Heroine sometime soon. Go, 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 go! Which way, Benji? Okay, go straight. Straight, straight, straight. Now turn right. Now? Yes, go right. Are you sure? Yes, I'm... Oh, it's left. Turn left. Sorry, I had the screen lock on. But just as the plot starts making sense, the chases start to kick in. Chase after chase after chase. Tom takes off in various vehicles, including a motorbike without a helmet. He leaps over trucks, out of planes, down sewers and between tall buildings. What are you waiting for? I'm jumping out a window! Oh, sorry. Good luck. And when he's had enough of that, and I have to say he takes rather longer to tire of the chase as a plot device than I do, he takes off somewhere that requires helicopter daring do. See, he's been infiltrated. I don't trust Walker. I don't trust anybody outside of this room. We're going to have to go it alone. Stopping only to establish that the team has been compromised, absolutely no points for guessing the culprit, Tom takes the crew to Kashmir. That's Kashmir, India. Here's a map. And once there, Tom flies his own helicopters, no stunt pilots or anyone, between the Himalayas for what seems like hours. What the hell is he doing? I find it best not to look. Now, I'm certainly not going to dismiss Cruz's physical feats in Mission Impossible Fallout. Like his co-stars, we can only look on in wonder. I wish I could say the same about the plot, which is essentially the world is saved at the last possible moment by Tom Cruise. Yes, again. This is a bad idea. Is it over a good one? Honestly. Suit up.
Now, I don't know if the film could have been improved by advising the star to stop hogging the ball, but it's an idea that's certainly worth trying out next time and maybe put some jokes in there once in a while. Meanwhile, let's get that Princess Margaret thriller up and running. Over the years, American film enthusiasts have wrung their hands over the industry's treatment of actress Glenn Close. Unlike her rival Meryl Streep, who seems to win awards for every movie she appears in, poor Glenn remains always the bridesmaid in films like Dangerous Liaisons, Fatal Attraction and Albert Nobbs, and never the Oscar bride. Don't paint me as a victim. I am much more interesting than that can't take it. I can't take the humiliation. So it's interesting that Glenn Close's latest bid for awards is a film called The Wife, a film about the overshadowed spouse of a distinguished American novelist who's on the verge of picking up the top literary award. Hello? Am I speaking to Mr. Gosselman? I'd like my wife to get on the extension. Hello, I'm on. It is my great honour to tell you in The Wife, Joseph Castleman is one of the most significant authors in America and an obvious candidate for a Nobel Prize. He's delighted, if not exactly modest, about his achievement and gives slightly condescending credit to his wife, Joan, Glenn Close, for her loyal support. Tell me this isn't some great big fat joke. It's all real, darling. <laughs> Breathe. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Joe Castleman is played by English actor Jonathan Price, and I think the casting is significant. I suspect an American actor might have been more inclined to chew the scenery in this potentially monstrous role. For Joe is, if not a monster, then a deeply flawed character, the spoilt brat who demands total subservience from his wife and from his aspiring writer's son, David. Next time I introduce you, try a little eye contact. And next time, don't refer to me as your son, the half-baked writer. You shouldn't leave my approval to write. Everyone needs approval, Joe. The irony here being that first, no one needs more approval than Joe Castleman. And second, far from taking time to develop his authorial voice, Joe became successful straight out of the blocks. His first novel was a smash. Enjoy, enjoy from Sylvia Fry. Who the hell is Sylvia Fry? One of your characters, Dad. Don't be hard on him, David. He's tired. Joe, Joan and David arrive in Stockholm to receive the Nobel Prize. And while Joe rehearses the ceremony, Joan runs into an old, not particularly welcome acquaintance, Joe's would-be biographer Nathaniel, played rather well by Christian Slater. Scaslin, I have gotten an offer to write a book about Joe. A writer writes, because if he does not, his soul will starve. Nathaniel's research is the device to travel back in time to when Joe and Joan met. He was her married professor. She aspired to be a serious writer. A writer writes because he has something personal to say. You write with intelligence, but you're detached. The characters are supposed to be detached, especially the mother. My wife doesn't write, thank God. Otherwise, I'd suffer permanent writer's lock. (laughs) 
And the point that the wife makes is that women writers, particularly back in the 60s and 70s, didn't count in academic circles. They weren't important. The few successful ones were only successful with the public, never with the grey-haired men who determined literary merit, we're told. Don't ever think that you can get their approval. Who's? The men. The ones who decide who gets to be taken seriously. A writer has to write. A writer has to be read, honey. And it seems young Joan decided to sacrifice her own ambitions for Joe's. But is there more to the story, asks Nathaniel. And the way the wife is weighted towards Joan, it's a pretty safe bet that there is. Welcome to Stockholm. We are so delighted to have you here. I came across some of your stories in the college journal, beautifully written. Joe had a very heavy hand as a teacher. Did he encourage you to keep writing? Glenn Close is good, of course, but even her skills can't solve the problem at the heart of the story. What on earth was the appeal of Joe Castleman, who, even at the start of his career, seemed arrogant, needy and self-centred? These days, he's just a bully. I am aware of Joe's various indiscretions. His affairs have nothing to do with you. That's a deep-seated fear of inadequacy. As the wife waits for the worm to turn, it's never explained how the talented, ambitious Joan became a worm in the first place. Was it the innate sexism of the New York book scene that put her in her place, or was she simply smitten by Joe Castleman's invisible charm? What are we doing? Joan, we're not bad people. I think you are sick and tired of Joe Castleman. I would like to convey to you the warm congratulations of the Swedish Academy. You have reinvented the very nature of storytelling. At the end, the most supportive person at the Nobel Prize event is the least likely, the King of Sweden. While Joan's husband basks in the admiration of his mostly male peers, only His Majesty has the good manners to inquire what makes her tick. Is this a comment on European-American relations, we wonder? Tell me about yourself. Do you have an occupation? I do. And what is that? I am a kingmaker. A little film set in 1780s Czechoslovakia certainly punches above its weight as far as the look and sound go. Sets, costumes, wigs and props of interlude in Prague look wonderful, partly because much of the Czech capital still looks as it did when the composer Mozart visited it. Even the music sounds authentic, I'm told. The intention of Interlude in Prague is obviously to do for 18th century opera what Shakespeare in Love did for 16th century theatre. But where Shakespeare in Love built a glossy Elizabethan comic romp around the elements of his famous romantic tragedy Romeo and Juliet, Interlude in Prague concerns the plot of that unscrupulous seducer Don Giovanni. I've discovered a beautiful young soprano, Susanna Luptak. You have the most beautiful smile. I believe him to be a man without morals. He flirts with an innocent young woman in whom I have a professional interest. But times have changed since 1786. These days, audiences are a lot less forgiving of an aristocratic libertine like Giovanni in the wake of the downfall of Harvey Weinstein, ironically or not, the producer of Shakespeare in Love. 
But at the time of Mozart, people like Baron Soloko could get away with anything he pleased. Baron Soloko too, very handsome and wealthy too. Dare I dream of such a man, Susanna? There are rumours. Ladies, some married. Just don't be alone with him. Mozart is visiting Prague to oversee the production of another of his operas, The Marriage of Figaro. He was invited by an old friend, the singer Josefa Ducek, played by the appealing singer Samantha Barks, rather better known from the West End stage than movies so far. So who will sing Carabina? Susanna Luptak. She's very talented, has an amazing voice, and she knows the part well. It's a lot to ask of her. She's so young. Don't worry. She can do it. Mozart is looking for a new lead for Figaro and is smitten, both artistically and romantically, by a lovely young soprano called Susanna. But the wealthy Baron has already set his sights on her. My father wants me to marry Baron Salico. It's ridiculous. There must be something I can do. Mozart is out of control. I suspect that I'm being watched. Playing Mozart and Susanna are up-and-coming young Welsh stars Anaran Barnard and Morfid Clark, while the villainous Baron is a regular moustache twirler on TV, James Purefoy. Finally, I have you all to myself. There's little doubt they are lovers. I can destroy him. But I cannot be seen as the architect of his downfall. The plot thickens as Mozart starts using incidents from the Baron's scandalous career to beef up the storyline of Don Giovanni, while Susanna's nouveau riche parents pressure their daughter to marry the ardent Baron. But Susanna has found herself drawn to the rather more romantic Mozart. I have long-term plans for Fräulein Blutter. Saloka thinks himself above the law. The good Baron has requested your presence. You are aware of his reputation. They're playing a dangerous game here, Maestro. Well, so far, so Shakespearean love, but it's very much the B-movie version. No big-name stars, corners cut at every turn, and a merely adequate script that can't hope to match the firepower of Sir Tom Stoppard. Haven't you blossomed? I am frightened. I have some unfinished business to attend to. More critically, Shakespeare himself was a rather more skilful plot divisor than either Mozart or Mozart's anonymous libretto writers. And audiences are far more familiar with the plot elements of Romeo and Juliet than they are with the details of Don Giovanni. Don Giovanni is a wicked man. I'm not saying Interlude in Prague doesn't have many subsidiary pleasures. The costumes, the wonderful exteriors and interiors, particularly the Prague Opera House, and of course the music. But the plot struggles to hang together, forgivable in an opera but not in a movie, and sorely misses the services of a more imaginative director. Begging your pardon, sir. I'm sorry to bother you at this time, sir. But it's to do with Baron Sawaka. I was in his service, sir. I'm carrying his child. And maybe the biggest problem is the dark, sinister figure of Don Giovanni himself, either the traditional character or represented by the glowering Baron in Interlude in Prague. 
He is the devil, sir. He murdered my father in cold blood. I saw it. Today, the character of the vile seducer is hardly a subject for frothy entertainment, no matter that he gets his comeuppance at the end. Maybe Mozart's interlude should have been inspired by a comedy barber called Figaro instead. But no takers for a film called Interlude in Seville, it seems. And on that reminder of the importance of a good title, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.